Welcome to the podcast for the October 2022 HR02 issue. I am Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief, and invite you to read the very interesting papers in this issue, which includes 15 original articles, one Fellows Corner paper, two perspectives in contrast which focus on the use of the subcutaneous ICD, Dr. Andrea Rousseau arguing for a broad consideration of its use, and Dr. Ulrika Birgers-Daughter-Green arguing for a more circumspect use. A topic in review that examines intracardiac echocardiography techniques to identify ventricular arrhythmia substrates, and finally, one case report. Rather than discussing all of the original articles, I have chosen five randomly selected papers to review in this podcast. The first paper is called Outcomes of the Rolling Cohort of the Amulet IDE Trial of Left Atrial Appendage Occlusion by Drs. D.J. Lacaretti and colleagues. In 2021, the pivotal randomized trial comparing patients receiving the amulet left atrial appendage occlusion device to the Watchman 2.5 appendage closure device were published. The results showed that the amulet occluder was non-inferior for the safety and efficacy outcomes compared to the Watchman 2.5. Additionally, the amulet was found to be superior in regards to a successful placement of the amulet when compared to the Watchman, though procedure-related complications were higher with the amulet, and these decreased over time and operator experience. This current paper presents the results of the 201 patients from the roll-in phase of the amulet left atrial appendage occluder device IDE trial. Key inclusion criteria for the trial included patients with documented paroxysmal persistent or permanent non-valvular atrial fibrillation, a high risk of stroke or systemic embolism defined by the CHADS-2 or CHADS-VAS score of two or three respectively, And finally, that the investigator identified patients who could take short-term VKA therapy but could not take it long-term. To participate, investigators had to have implanted the Watchman device, but not necessarily the amulet device. There were three primary endpoints. The first was device closure, defined as residual jet around the device at less than 5 millimeters at the 45-day transesophageal echo. Second, a composite of procedure-related complications, all-cause death, or major bleeding through 12 months, and third, a composite of ischemic stroke or systemic embolism through 18 months. There were pre-specified secondary endpoints, which included a composite of all stroke, ischemic or hemorrhagic, systemic embolism or cardiovascular and unexplained death at 18 months, and second major bleeding at 18 months. The investigators found that they could successfully implant the device in this rolling cohort in 99% of enrollees and had a successful device closure defined as a residual jet of 5 millimeters in 98.9% of the patients at 45 days. The safety endpoint was numerically higher or worse in the rolling cohort when compared to the results in the randomized trial cohort, 18.4 versus 14.5% when compared to the Watchman patients. Six patients, or 3.1%, experienced an ischemic stroke, and there were no patients who had a systemic embolism within 18 months, and these results were similar to the primary effectiveness endpoint rate in the randomized trial, which was 2.8%. The authors conclude that despite lack of previous experience with the amulet device in many of the investigators, device implant success was high, with a high rate of device closure, low stroke rates, but with somewhat higher procedure-related complications. The authors expect that complication rates would decrease with increased implanter experience. The next study is titled Lesion Index Guided Workflow for the Treatment of Paroxysmal Atrial Fibrillation is Safe and Effective. Final results from the LSI Workflow Study 
by Dr. Kirtik Prasad and colleagues. The purpose of this prospective observational study was to capture best practices in the United States, Europe, and in Japan using the Abbott Tacticaf ablation catheter. It is known that contact force and RF ablation time forms the force time integral. A minimum FTI threshold of 400 grams seconds is associated with higher PVI success rates at three months. The lesion index, or LSI, used in this study is a proprietary index that encompasses both contact force, RF current, and ablation time. The LSI value expresses the gradual growth of lesion formation. The authors note that the formation of a lesion greater than 5 centimeters has been shown to be associated with more durable lesions. The purpose of this study was to assess the real-world results in lesion size using this technology and to assess the lesion sizes within different anatomical areas of the left atrium around the pulmonary veins. 143 patients with PAF were included in the study. All patients were undergoing de novo PVI ablation. The PVIs were isolated in all patients. The PVI lesions were assigned to 10 different left atrial areas. All lesion indexes were analyzed with a mean of 4.9 centimeters. Values were lower in Europe, 4.4, and Japan, 4.5, than in the United States, 5.5 centimeters. Overall, 76.2% of the patients did not require touch-up after a single pass around the pulmonary veins. When the LSI was equal to or greater than 5, ablation times were shorter, with lower fluoroscopy times and fewer touch-ups. Across operators, LSI varied from 3 to 6 centimeters for each PV region. Average LSI was lower in the posterior compared to anterior lesions. The lowest mean region was the posterior region of the left inferior pulmonary vein and the highest in the posterior right inferior pulmonary vein and anterior right superior vein. 95.7% of subjects, including 35% on antiarrhythmic drugs, were free from recurrent AF at 12 months. Percent, or 3 of the 143 patients, had repeat procedures. The next paper is titled Machine Learning for Multidimensional Response and Survival After Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy Using Features from Cardiac Magnetic Resonance by Dr. Bibong and colleagues. In this study, the authors explore the use of machine learning to characterize multidimensional CRT response and its relationship with long-term survival. They used 39 different features for the machine learning. This included a number of clinical factors as well as CRT measures of response. Baseline CMR determined cardiac function was included. Not all patients had six-month follow-up CMRs, and in those cases, echo determinants were used. Additional clinical factors were obtained at six months. A total of 200 patients were included in this study. The machine learning generated response clusters and associations of clusters were evaluated for four-year survival. Associations that had more than one response parameter were observed for the CMR-CURE-SVD dyssynchrony parameter and for GFR. Machine learning defined three response clusters that were associated with best, intermediate, and worst survival. When the data from the six-month evaluations were added, the ROC improved from 0.78, just using the baseline factors, to 0.86. The authors conclude that machine learning characterized CRT response clusters had a strong and additive influence on long-term survival. 
The next paper is called Integration of 3D Nuclear Imaging and 3D Mapping Systems for Ventricular Tachycardia Ablation in Patients with Implanted Devices, Perfusion, Voltage, Retrospective Assessment of Scar Location by Dr. Bernard Tebalt and colleagues. This study looks at low voltage or proarrhythmic areas to target for catheter ablation of scar-mediated ventricular tachycardia using pre-procedure SPECT-CT integration with electroanatomical mapping, EAM, using the Abbott Precision Mapping System. The authors retrospectively co-registered the SPECT-CT imaging, the EAM data, and ablation legions on the NSITE system. Twenty patients were included in this study. All subjects had a REST nuclear imaging protocol prior to ablation to evaluate myocardial perfusion. A low-dose CD was acquired first for attenuation, correction, and localization. The authors found that SPEC-CT imaging identified ischemic scar tissue in all subjects. 47 BT episodes were induced in the patients. The isthmus regions were identified with the EA voltage mapping. Average ablation time was about 245 minutes with a total of about 43 ablation legions. ROC analysis identified a score threshold of greater than 1.72 to classify perfusion or voltage average scores as viable. The AUC was 0.78. Using this threshold, 87 of 312 segments, or 28%, were viable, and 130, or 42%, were not viable using both the perfusion and voltage mapping. Concordance between the EAM and perfusion segments was 70%. Four of the 19 patients had a concordance better than 80%, and eight patients were between 70 and 80%. Voltage average scores were found to overestimate the scar in 7.6% of segments, and this translates into a negative predictive value for this registration of 70.3%. Voltage scores failed to identify 12.8% of all segments that were measured as viable by the SPECT, This translates into a positive predictive value of 68.5%. The sensitivity of the paired segments was 61.3%. Specificity of non-viable segments was 76.5% when comparing SPECT to perfusion mapping. The authors also found that projection on low-resolution 3D geometries led to an average decrease of about 38% of the voltage points used. The authors conclude that retrospective integration of SPEC-CT with EAM is feasible and that this process can help to characterize VT ablation targets. The next paper is titled Outcomes of Patients with Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction Undergoing Catheter Ablation of Atrial Fibrillation by Dr. Krishnamurthy and colleagues. This study focuses on HEP PEF patients who were referred for AF ablation compare rates of procedural complications and 30-day readmission rates to patients with HEF-REF and to patients without heart failure using the nationwide readmissions database. 50,299 admissions of adults with heart failure undergoing AF catheter ablation between 2010 and 2014 were searched using ICD-9-CM codes. The authors found that over the four years of search, the prevalence of PEF having AF ablation more than doubled from 3.05% to 7.35%, with the p-value for the trend of 0.001. Compared to patients without heart failure, patients with PEF were older, were more likely to be female, and were more likely to have coronary artery disease, previous percutaneous coronary intervention, 
previous pacemaker implantation, diabetes, obesity, previous stroke, valvular disease, peripheral vascular disease, pulmonary hypertension, and lung disease. HEFPEF patients had significantly more procedural complications compared to patients without heart failure. In addition, mortality was higher, 8.4 versus 6.2%. In contrast, index complication rates between HEFPEF and HEFREF patients were similar. 30-day readmissions occurred in 18.3% of patients with HEFPEF and 9.5% of patients without heart failure. This was a p-value of 0.001. HEFPEF versus no heart failure was independently associated with all-cause readmissions with an odds ratio of 1.52, but not with procedural complications, cardiac readmissions, or early mortality. The authors conclude that rates of 30-day readmissions after AF ablation are high in patients with HEFPEF. However, after adjustment for age and comorbidities, complications, and early mortality after AF ablation between patients with HEFPEF and those without heart failure were comparable. This concludes the October 2022 HRO2 podcast. I look forward to bringing you the highlights of the December 2022 issue in a few months. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this podcast.